Before we begin, I just wanted to remind you that this is part two of a two-part episode on Utopias. This episode will make a lot more sense if you've heard the first part, episode 18. So if you haven't, now's the time to go back and have a listen. I'm Connor Reed with words to that effect. In the last episode, we talked about the history of Utopia and about the power of Utopian thinking. I like to talk about utopianism being totalizing, transgressive, and transformative. This is Professor Tom Moylan again, who talked us through some of that history. For me, utopianism is 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 very much uh, the, the creative attempt by a group of people to respond to the great challenges of, of any age and to do so in a way that's visionary, that, that's not limited. It, it is an open-ended future. And this is Professor Patter Kirby, who we briefly heard from in the last episode. Professor Kirby lives in the Clock Jordan eco-village in Tipperary, an intentional community of people trying to live a more ecological and communal way of life. The eco-village is a perfect story of a utopian project. It is, by any estimation, utopian. They... They're dealing with the world and they're doing it step by step in their building and their daily lives, but they have a big vision of making an impact uh, both nationally in Ireland and internationally. Um, So they're an intentional community, they're a utopian project, um, and they're ecological. I was keen to hear what life is actually like in a community like this. Is daily life very different from your average life in an Irish town? How do you join and does someone decide if you get in or not? And what exactly is ecological about the eco-village? It's very different. I mean, it's, you know, you're living in an intentional community which does everything on a voluntary basis. Uh, we all sign up to giving at least 100 hours voluntary labor uh, a year. I mean, most of us do huge multiples of that. And that's what keeps the project going. It's also a very multi-dimensional project in the sense that we have a farm, we now have an amphitheater, we have an enterprise center, we have uh, now a, a cooperative cafe that uses the produce of the farm and of a bakery, we have an award-winning bakery here in the eco-village. So it, it's, it's, it's very multifaceted. We're also an educational charity, so we put on a lot of, of courses and, and visits for groups. You know, it's, it's the busiest place in the world. At times I come in at home and I close the door and I just want to just want to sit down and be left in peace because there's so much going on. I mean, it's not that we're not left in peace in the sense of people all the time knocking on the door. No, I mean, that doesn't happen, but there's so much on and there's meetings on. So not like your average suburban neighborhood then. Yeah, and and so just in terms of the neighbors and in terms of the people who live there, obviously there are advantages to having people with certain skills living in the community who can, for example, run a bakery or help with different projects. So how do people apply to live there? Or how do people come to live there? Or is there a selection process? Or how how does it work exactly? Well, it raises a very interesting set of issues. and, And I think they're very interesting issues when you look at them through the lens of utopianism. Uh, when this project was born, it was, it was designed in the boom years of the Celtic Tiger, and the decision was made, this was before I joined, that uh, the way of joining the community would be to put down a deposit on, on a site. So anybody who put down a non-refundable 15,000 euro deposit on a site then had to become a member. Uh, 
Now, that, that worked well up to the collapse in the economy because money was plentiful. People weren't too concerned about livelihoods in the sense that there seemed to be plenty of work around. Uh, then the collapse came, and of course, people began to withdraw very quickly. People lost jobs. People couldn't get mortgages. People couldn't sell houses. The value of the houses that they, that they had to sell were collapsing. That's that crisis we haven't fully recovered from yet, uh, mm. in the sense that even though there's a lot of interest, that it's 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 now so much more difficult to get a mortgage. People are much more cautious. We on the board have been trying to move the project towards a point where we would build the houses. There's also a big demand for rental, and in the original conception of the project, uh, we deliberately excluded people buying a site and building for the purpose of renting out because we felt that that might attract speculators who have no commitment to the project, wouldn't share its values, etc. And now there's a huge demand for rental. There's, con- I mean, week on week, and we can't meet that demand. So, so we're talking to a, a builder now about building out extensively, maybe 40 different housing units, and we've also got agreement from Tipperary County Council for social housing, so people on lower incomes, because obviously uh, to have built houses here in the eco-village, people had to have uh, I mean, well above average incomes. So that, that has meant we're not a particularly diverse community in, in class terms or income terms. So we're trying to address that. And so what about the selection process? Uh, is there one? Is there a veto? The simple answer is no. But the more complex answer is that we do realize that, uh, you know, people who come here and are interested in living here really need to be well aware of the demanding nature of living in an intentional community. Uh, While it has enormous positive dimensions, it also makes demands in the way in which living in an average estate doesn't. And so, therefore, we do have an induction process. We do insist that people attend our. Uh, monthly members meetings, which are the the, the fundamental decision-making meetings of the project, and generally get to know us before they'd, uh, you know, finally buy a site. And I think one of the benefits of not having a veto is that we have now a very diverse community who interpret questions of sustainability and community living in very different ways. That's much more real. And of course, that's what we want to do. We want to model sustainability. And sustainability isn't only for the the pure and the ideologically driven, it's, it's for everybody. So, you know, we have to have a diverse and mixed community. We have a, a, a huge variety of, of value systems, really. Uh, and of, I mean, while everybody will claim that they're interested in sustainability and environmentalism and concerned about climate change, by golly, do we interpret that in very, very, very different ways. So, yeah, how do you model sustainability? What, what sort of things do you do as an eco-village? Well, uh, there's about three or four sort of fundamental bases that will support our claim to be an eco-village. Number one is the way we build our houses. So we have an ecological charter that we drew up ourselves back in 2007. There is a group working to update it now. Uh, And that specifies standards for the ways in which we build our houses. So one level of standards is something that's now really quite quite equivalent to national building regulations. So when we drew them up, they were well ahead of national building regulations. So levels of heat retention, of insulation, uh, uh, of um, 
so there are those technical standards, but then there are wider standards about not using toxic materials, about using local materials as much as possible, not sourcing materials that are uh, manufactured with low-cost labor. Those are aspirational values, but I think many of us in, in the ways we've built and the materials we've used have sought to, to follow those sorts of values. So that's one thing, the ways we've built our houses. The second big thing is that we have the only district heating system in Ireland that's fueled entirely uh, by renewable energy. So we heat our houses in, a, in ways that are completely carbon neutral. Now that's unique in Ireland. The third thing is that we have a unique food system. We have a farm on the eco-village, which is a community-supported agriculture farm where we join and pay, uh, pay um, a fee every month, which then allows us to employ two eco-villagers as farmers, uh, and it gives them the freedom then to systematically seek to regenerate the soil and to experiment with crops in a way that probably isn't done in any other farm in Ireland, and then supply all members, and not all eco-villagers are members, and some non-eco-villagers are members, but supply all members with the produce of the farm uh, twice a week, but not in a sort of a box, as, as people in Dublin might know of, but the, the, the produce is deposited in, in our coach house here, and we just take what we need. So it's, it's a system that works on trust. It's completely non-commercial. We don't buy anything. The farm doesn't sell anything. And it has allowed the farmers to attend to, to in a very scientific and systematic way, to regenerate the soil using biodynamic and organic methods. So that means that, that we source much of our food from our own land. We become not just the consumers, but the producers of the food, because we all volunteer on the farm as well. And that has now spawned a business, a catering business, on the main street. So it's not just for the eco-villagers, it's for the whole village of Top Jordan, where the produce of the farm is used to provide uh, food, very innovative sorts of meals, uh, which are obviously very healthy and are, are sourced largely from local materials. So th those would be the three ways in which we would claim that we are uniquely an, an, an eco-village. And then we did seek to get evidence a few years ago that we are modeling the transition to a, to a low-carbon society. So we got Tipperary Energy Agency to measure our ecological footprint. And we came in, this was in 2014, with an ecological footprint of two global hectares per uh, person uh, in the eco-village. Which, uh, which is less than half that of the Irish, average Irish person. So we're almost at the level of sustainability, not quite. We would need 1.1 planets to live like we live. The average Irish person would need 3.6 planets. So, uh, you know, we're, we're, we're getting there. We, we, have, we have a way to go yet. Yeah, it's, a, it's an interesting way of looking at it. The planets per person, it, it makes it more, more real than sort of more abstract measurements. So we have this immense potential with this limited capacity. And to me, that's what uh, utopianism is about. It's dreaming the sort of impossible dreams, uh, but also with your feet absolutely firmly in the ground. 
I mean, I, I, I just find it the most exciting place to live. I've spent my life working as a political scientist, writing about um, political economy models, etc. And here now I end up my life living in a community that it seems to me is doing all that. It's modeling the seeds of a, of a different sort of, of system, economic and social system, as we move towards the challenges of sustainability. And modeling is such a key aspect of the utopia. You're either, in the case of somewhere like Clark Jordan, trying to change standard practices by modeling something different or gesturing towards even more radical change. Or in the case of utopian fiction, utopian ideas explored but not lived, you're creating a model on paper, a blueprint, a fiction, story. They all intertwine. Then you're testing its robustness with characters, with conflict, with potential problems, with the human imagination. And in today's world, plenty of these models are trying to explore and test a future in which climate change is even more of a problem than it is today. Writers are imagining dystopian futures with water scarcity or rising sea levels with desertification, agricultural catastrophes or the spread of new diseases and the utopian thinking needed to mitigate against these issues. In other words, how do we live in a way that doesn't require 3.6 planets? Lots of words and phrases are being applied to this unprecedented situation. Global warming, climate change, sustainable development, decarbonisation, permaculture, emergency century, climate adaptation, cruel optimism, climate mitigation, hopeless hope, the sixth mass extinction event, and so on. But maybe sentences are the minimum unit that can begin to suggest the situation in full. This coming century looks like the moment in human history when we will either invent a civilization that nurtures the biosphere while it supports us, or else we will damage it quite badly, perhaps even to the point of causing a mass extinction event and endangering ourselves. A narrative, rather than words or labels. A narrative, rather than words or labels. These are the words of Kim Stanley Robinson, acclaimed award-winning author of multiple utopian works of fiction, from an interview published in an excellent collection called Green Planets. I would name Kim Stanley Robinson as probably the consummate utopian writer. Professor Moylan again. It's because he, he has studied utopia. He's open to the notion of the utopian imagination. Um, and you take something like his Mars trilogy, and it's, it's a study in the utopian process. This is Robinson's trilogy of novels, Red Mars, Blue Mars, Green Mars, published between 1992 and 1996. Three volumes, very long, uh, very intriguing. Colonists leave the Earth, form a colony. Earth oppresses them. They revolt and form a new society, which is, has its utopian aspirations. The second or third generation of that society runs into its own limits and its own debates. They provoke another utopian change, and it goes on and it goes on. And so he's it's very tuned into what causes human suffering, usually state and economic power, uh, and he's very tuned into what people can do to organize to change that, but he's also tuned into our own proclivities to betray ourselves, to let ourselves down, just as much as we are to be attacked from the outside by others. So he's 
It's a very sophisticated and matured sense of the utopian. Robinson is a writer well known for his meticulous scientific research and for his long, intensely detailed novels about the future. And the challenges of climate change are a major part of his work. That other concern, the end of the world because of what's happening to the climate and the environment, um, is facing us all. Uh, and if there was ever a time for a dystopian slash utopian response, uh, this is it. You know, we, we, we have to be able to describe how bad things really are in the dystopian sense, but we also have to start thinking about how we're going to get beyond this moment of, you know, what some people are calling the end of the Anthropocene, you know, the, the end of this great surge of overconfident human um, existence. Um, people like Margaret Atwood and more so Donna Haraway, the, the biologist, uh, cultural studies theorist, um, whose recent book is entitled Staying with the Trouble, are saying, okay, we, we are in the mess we're in now, and we're never going to get back to some pristine, Edenic world. We're, we're in a pretty destroyed world, but what are we going to do about it, and how are we going to change it? And that's where writers like Robinson are doing the imaginative work, but you also have literary critics like Lisa Garforth, who's just done a book called Green Utopias, which are studying the whole tendency of, of utopian thinking in the green movement. As mentioned, the idea of narrative rather than just words or labels is key. And this is where fiction can play a crucial role in confronting the problems of climate change. Because one of the most problematic aspects of climate change is that it's slow. It's very hard to point to. It's not really perceivable on our human timescales of days and weeks and months. It's like trying to watch a tree growing. You know, you know it's growing, you can see the effects on its surroundings, but you can't see it grow. Trees don't function on the same timescales as we do. But narrative stories, novels constantly play with time. You can write a 1,000-page novel about a single day, or a short story about the history of the universe. Which is where climate change fiction comes in. And there's lots of it out there. It's a whole subgenre, sometimes called cli-fi. There are lots of ways of making climate change more appreciable, more pressing on a smaller timescale. We can consider its effects, be warned of its dangers, think through the complex problems it may bring. So you have the artificially sped up catastrophic versions, which work particularly well on film. You know, films like The Day After Tomorrow. you have works where climate change is represented by something else, perhaps another species. In the 2004 best-selling German thriller The Swarm by Frank Schätzing, the Earth's ecosystem is suddenly sabotaged in a seemingly coordinated way. A team of scientists and others have to race to work out what's going on and avert a global catastrophe. It's not subtle in its message, and it's not a great novel. All 900 pages of it. Why did I read that novel? But it clearly struck a chord with its readers, and it's been translated into dozens of languages selling well all over the world. Except for the US, but that's most likely accountable by the fact that it's strongly, at times absurdly, anti-American. Then there are the future dystopian works like Paolo Bacigalupi's The Water Knife, set in a future US where climate change has decimated the country and made water a commodity people are more than willing to kill for. The most recent Mad Max film inhabits a pretty similar world, as do so many other works. 
trapped in this wasteland. I am the one who runs from both the living <laughs> and the dead. And then there are works which imagine what would be required for nations to work together to address a huge global catastrophe. In um, his Science in the Capital trilogy, Robinson has a great little narrative riff, uh, well, great little, um, the Gulf Stream dies because of the, the rapid climate change and the shift in the, the atmospheric uh, movement. And he actually thinks through a way in which uh, all of the nations of the Earth marshalling all their capabilities uh, and their shipping fleets uh, devise a way to scientifically, technologically jumpstart the Gulf Stream again. And he, he works it out, and, and he worked it out in, in conversation with scientists. And it's that level of big science meets big utopia that um, I think there's a lot of very, very interesting and important work going on. So utopian and dystopian fiction allow us to imagine, to live through, to tease out the environmental problems facing humanity. The critic Frederick Jameson once noted that in the case of utopian texts, the most reliable political test lies not in any judgment on the individual work in question, so much as in its capacity to generate new ones. Utopian thinking is a conversation. The utopia imagines a different world, but one which is very aware of all the other worlds that have been created before it. Utopias in fiction and in reality question and challenge our ideas about the world and, in turn, generate new ideas, new utopias. They enter an open-ended conversation about our future. They are indeed totalizing, transgressive, and transformative. And we need the utopia today more than ever. That's it for another week of Words to That Effect. Thank you so much for listening. If this is the first episode you've listened to, firstly, why did you not listen to the bit at the start? This is the second part of a two-part episode. But secondly, thank you for listening. And now you can go back and listen to part one and to all of the previous 17 episodes. They can be listened to in any order, at any time, in almost any situation. Once you've listened, then spread the word. Tell your friends, all of your friends. If you've no friends, then acquaintances or colleagues will do. Seriously, though, word-of-mouth recommendation is just so powerful. It would help to keep the show growing, and I would be really, truly grateful. The show is also on Facebook and Instagram, and I'm on Twitter at C-E-D-Read, C-E-D-R-E-I-D. And links, pictures, recommendations, articles, and lots more are all at the website, wttepodcast.com, wttepodcast.com. Special thanks this week to my guests Patter Kirby and Tom Moylan. There are loads of links to their publications, to the Rallahine Centre for Utopian Studies, and to the Clock Jordan Eco Village on the website. Thanks also to Jared for being the voice of Kim Stanley Robinson. The fantastic music this week was by Forests and Sasso. Go check them both out if you haven't before. They're great. And there are links to their music on the website as well. And finally, just a quick podcast recommendation. If you feel like two episodes just wasn't enough utopia for you, there's a podcast called Utopian Horizons, which I would highly recommend if you really want to deep dive into lots of different aspects of utopia. And there's some really great guests on it as well. So that's Utopian Horizons. You can get it on all the usual podcast places, and I'll put a link on the website as well. And I think that's it. Thank you so much for listening, and I'll see you next time.
This podcast is part of the Headstuff Podcast Network.